Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. He's back. I think David Robson is the second guest I've had on a second time. The first being female Mormon psychopath Emmy Thomas. I've done a couple of two-parters otherwise, like with Chris Ryan and Sadia Hamid. But in terms of having someone back on to talk about a new work, this is a first. So welcome to this, the, what is it, the 89th episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. I've been expecting you. And I'll be talking all about those expectations in the coming hour with award-winning science writer David Robson whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Atlantic, E.ON, and many, many others. He was Features Editor at New Scientist for five years before working as a senior journalist at BBC Future. Last time, he was on to discuss his Intelligence Trap, a book I bring up on the podcast all the time because it's all about how some of the cleverest people make the biggest mistakes. A famous example being Sherlock Holmes writer Arthur Conan Doyle, who believed in fairies. So if he could believe something like that, what cognitive biases might you and I hold? And we don't even know about them. Who knows? But now David Robson is back with the expectation effect, which is why I said all that stuff about I've been expecting you and expectations. His book's called The Expectation Effect. Another vivid trip into the fallacies and complexities of the human psyche. The book is a roaring success that documents all sorts of ways that our expectations alone can have very real effects on outcomes, whether it be lifespans, illnesses, or anything else. So maybe try and think positively. Anyway, he'll tell us all about that, and please do sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold or on Apple subscribers to listen to the bonus episode. Next week is one of my all-time heroes, someone I looked up to as a young writer and journalist, and someone without whom I might not be in this business and this podcast might not exist. And that's John Ronson of The Psychopath Test. Uh, that was, you know, that was me just doing his his voice. He's got a very distinct uh, voice, which is which is beautiful, I think. He's the writer of So You've Been Publicly Shamed as well, Psychopath Test, and many books and films. Um, and then it will be author of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins. Uh, I already did the interview, as I have done for John as well. Uh, Dawkins was very, very scary. Um, and then Jordan Harbinger, who I've spoken to as well, will be in, in among the mix quite soon. But now, it's the wonderful David Robson.
nice um, tinsel and everything. You got it all kicking off. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're um, moving house soon, actually. So uh, it's all a bit last minute, like the Christmas decorations. But, um, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to do something. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to do something as well. And then my girlfriend's going to be away for Christmas. And I thought, it's just me and the tree. What's the point? Oh, no, that's a shame. But, I mean, <laughs> are you going away on in January, you said? Yeah, so I'm going to join her. She's she's going in a couple of weeks. Uh, She's going in one week to Argentina to see her family. They're all from Argentina. So she'll be there for six weeks, and then I'll go out at mid-January. So where are you guys based? Where are you moving to? Uh, We're not moving far. We're in Stratford at the moment, and we're moving to West Ham. So, (laughs) you know, uh, it's not like a step up in the world, necessarily. I thought it was the same thing in my... Stratford and West Ham is the same thing in my mind, because I just think of the football team, and I think that's in Stratford, isn't it? Okay, nice. It's like a, yeah, like 15-minute walk away from where we are now. Are you stressed out? Uh, I'm trying to see it as an exciting opportunity for growth. (laughs) which I learned from (laughs) researching the expectation effect so we'll see if that works but yeah yeah. tell tell us about the about the book then I've I've been loving it Uh, tell me all about it yeah so it's um it's called the expectation effect it's all about the way our mindsets kind of influence our life um everything from you know the placebo effect in medicine to kind of like I mentioned like the way we appraise stress can influence its kind of physiological effects on us and the kind of you know, even down to our mortality, you know, like there's this thing about if you're stressed, you're going to die young. But that's only true if you believe that stress is damaging your health. Um, you know, even things like ageing, how quickly we age biologically can depend to a certain extent on our kind of ageing mindsets and whether we believe ageing is a time of like decline and disability or whether it's kind of an opportunity for growth and your experiences. That's quite amazing. Did you think about that? Um, did that go into your mind as an idea for a book, partly because of what's happening at the moment, the last couple of years with COVID? Because I mean, how many times have you thought like, oh God, I think I'm coming down with something. Can I taste right? I've heard I can't taste right. Have you had that a few times? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also with like vaccine side effects, you know, like um, we know COVID vaccines definitely like a lot of the side effects are caused by like a biological reaction to the vaccine. But um you know, in about 50% of cases also, they're caused by expectations. Um, so that's like a really powerful example of what's called the nocebo effect in medicine. Yeah, 50%. That's Because one of the things that um, I, was, I was reading um, in your book was that vaccinations, when you get like a flu jab, uh, a lot of people think they get ill from the vaccination, but that's not how vaccinations work. But I'm pretty sure I got from the covid one i got the johnson and johnson thing which was just a one luckily i didn't have to have it twice but i was i was a wreck i was like shaking and shivering and going berserk surely that wasn't just because i expected that and it was in my mind no i mean probably it wasn't so i think what we have seen with um uh so basically with flu vaccinations you know they almost all the side effects apart from the pain in your arm are caused by expectation you know it's not it's not like a very strong vaccination in that sense. It's like gently kind of priming your immune system. But the COVID vaccines, and it's partly what makes their immunity, the immunity afterwards so effective, like they're really kind of stimulating your immune system. Um, and so they do, are actually more likely to have like the quote unquote, like real side effects than say the flu vaccinations. But even so, if you look at people in the placebo arm of the clinical trials, and they were just receiving salt water in that arm, 
um, still something like 25% of people there were <laughs> reporting like headaches and fatigue and nausea and all of these things. So, you know, it's like um, almost with like almost any anything in medicine, it's kind of a mixture of real biological effects and expectation on top of that. Wow. Yeah, a friend of mine got very early on, either he got the vaccine or he got a fake placebo thing. I don't think we even know now, or maybe I need to ask him, maybe he does know. In fact, surely they would have to tell him now so he'd know whether to have to get the vaccine or not. But I remember he did have headaches and stuff and he was questioning like, but is that, is it because of this? Or Man, it's it's a really crazy thing. So so what, I guess one of the things that the book is positing is is just this, well, not positing, it's just, it's just the fact that, that the placebo effect is very real and that we can sort of not just feel the effects, but we can become rather ill. And there are all these examples, as you say, of people dying. Oh, you know what, actually? The one bit that really stood out was right at the beginning, you talked about people with, um, uh, oh, shit, pa- uh, sleep paralysis, right? I get sleep paralysis, and it's awful, actually, because, uh, so so it's, it's, it's do, you, do you get it, by the way? No, I mean, I haven't so far, but I mean, the chances yeah. are everyone's going to experience it at one time in their life. So Especially yeah, after I mean, me talking pretty- about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah and it sounds pretty terrifying but yeah i it's, mean do you find it a yeah. horrible experience yeah. yeah it's the worst it's the worst thing in the world it's just it's like beyond you can't even explain how bad it is because you just and it happened it happened last night to me actually uh, and sometimes it won't happen for a year at a time or something and then it will happen quite a few times within a sp- the space of a few weeks and it's this thing where i um sort of become aware that i'm no longer sleeping and i'm awake and I'm, uh, my body is still paralyzed. But, uh, and for some reason with that, you have this like extreme anxiety and you feel like you can see things and a bit of hallucination. Horrible. But tell me that story about these people who were, it's going to make me even more scared of it, by the way, about these people who were actually dying because of it. Yeah, so they were um, immigrants from Laos and they had this um, kind of a, uh, Uh, like a religious belief that when you experience sleep paralysis, that's like this evil demon. And this is common actually all over the world. This was this evil demon that is kind of sitting on your chest and it can kind of suck the life out of you. Um, So obviously that's going to heighten your fear when you do experience sleep paralysis compared to if you um, can kind of reason that, you know, it's just a natural reaction to kind of waking up that happens occasionally. But um, but I think what was key for these people was to know they were arriving in the United States and a lot of them, you know, with their kind of adjustment to the new society that they were living in, they had started abandoning some of their previous like rituals, religious rituals that might have helped to protect them from this evil demon. Um, so when they started experiencing this sleep paralysis, they were like even more scared than they would have been in Laos. Um, and then that sometimes in quite a few cases actually uh promoted like a real real life heart attack and so you can see that then once that started happening amongst this very specific demographic of young men young immigrant men that the fear kind of spread it was almost like a case of mass hysteria and actually like at one point in the 1980s it was like the leading cause of death for these men so you know like really serious and the cdc were completely baffled by what was causing it and it was actually a cultural anthropologist who managed to link it to this um particular cultural belief did they do you know do you know what happened next did they go around all these people saying listen listen your belief in this thing is ridiculous stop it i guess what can you do with these people no exactly i mean i think that helped probably like having a better kind of scientific understanding of it i think also just after a while you know um uh these people probably just like 
became even better adapted to the kind of their new life. And maybe um, because when they didn't have the kind of underlying stress of also being like an immigrant in a new country, that that could have also helped them to adjust. Um, For these people, it was really a combination of everything. It was like they were suffering from like the incredible stress of having moved to a new continent. Then they were having this sleep paralysis. And that uh, all of that together was then causing them to have these kind of heart problems. My word. Imagine that just like, oh, because my sometimes my, my girlfriend has to wake me up from it because I can sort of make noises. I can I can't move anything, but I can sort and in my head I'm screaming, like in the dream, I'm going like like Holy, wake me up. Her name's Holy, but it could feel I hope I don't get the name wrong because I'm half dreaming still. But <laughs> I get, get a name right. Yeah. Go, wake me up, wake me up. And then but all she can hear is like which is pretty scary for her. But imagine yeah, if I was yeah. actually having a heart attack, bloody hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are reports of people who could hear that kind of noise, like um, this kind of ghostly kind of scream, um, and they couldn't do anything about it until the, the person had died. But Oh, my God, that's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really dark story, but I think it really does show how, um, like, how important our expectations and beliefs can be, and how, like, they can change our physiology in ways that we don't understand or haven't understood previously. It's really extraordinary. She she wakes me up if she hears me, um, and it does wake me up. Like she just if she so if she just grabs me. The unfortunate thing is because I, I told my friend Josh about this uh, recently, and then he started having. He'd never had that in his life, and he started having sleep paralysis. So there's probably about twenty thousand people listening to this. Don't get it. Don't get it. And if you do, it's not a real thing. And don't blame me. It's David's fault. Um, right. <laughs> So, yeah. and, and so so in the book you talk also about food allergies people get more food allergies and stuff like that is because people are always saying and sometimes it comes from a conservative place do you know what i mean like someone's stepmom or, or uncle or aunt is sort of oh weren't food allergies back in my day but is there some sort of uh, expectation effect going on yeah totally and i think that's really important that you know when like scientists had studied expectation effects in the past they had kind of thought oh it's these kind of culturally primitive people you know they'd actually use that language and it's like oh we're a scientific society like we're kind of totally immune to this but actually we're suffering from expectation effects of that kind all the time and one of the most common is the kind of um food allergies so um, if you look at kind of gluten sensitivity or kind of wheat allergies like there's no doubt that lots of people do have a kind of genuine allergy in the same sense that you know lots of people are having genuine um side uh, side effects of the kind of covid vaccines you know like there's a real biological link there that kind of explains the symptoms very clearly but actually there's a lot of people who um are experiencing these symptoms but when you give them these kind of blinded tests so you kind of give them a placebo food that doesn't include wheat or um any gluten or any of the other kind of carbohydrates that are thought to cause the symptoms that they still experience the kind of feeling of bloating, diarrhea, you know, whatever, like real symptoms, but it's just not being caused by the food itself. So it's coming from this kind of um, expectation effect. Um, you know, you read about it a lot in the media. I think that hasn't helped. And actually, you do see that where there's um, more media coverage, it's more prevalent. So, you know, our media is kind of spreading these ideas, uh, then having like serious effects on people's bodies and what they can eat. Wow. And so it's not, and I think this is quite an interesting part of, of your book is like, it's, they're not faking it, are they? They really do feel they are having the symptoms. Yeah, that's totally it. And you know, I've suffered from, um, we call these negative expectation effects, nocebo effects. And you know, I've suffered from that myself, like I, um, and it was kind of what prompted me to kind of write the book was that I was 
on this course of like antidepressants and um, one of the kind of expected side effects is that you get really bad headaches. And so I had these kind of migraines that wouldn't go away. It was really difficult to work. It felt a bit like having um, like an ice pick kind of going through my head, like Trotsky style, you know. Um, and it was, and then I kind of, because I was researching a, a, a journalistic article on the nocebo effect, I actually discovered that that it's actually really rare for people to experience like um, headaches from the pills themselves. Like people in the placebo arms are just as likely to experience headaches. And so that was really telling me that actually it's my expectations that were causing it. And, you know, so I kind of read that in the morning, went out for lunch, came back and my headache had like almost completely disappeared. Um, but I, I know that like the pain I was feeling wasn't like imagined. And studies actually showed that, you know, you can see physiological changes in the brain with kind of um, hormones and neurotransmitters that are causing, they're changing the kind of um, dilation of your blood vessels that can cause the headaches. Um, so it is a real effect, like it's a real symptom, just as much as if like I had taken a, a pill that was actually causing a chemical change in my brain, but it was just coming from my expectations, not from like a physical trigger. This was your second book, was it? After the intelligence trap, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, was I mean, you you did talk about your own struggles with depression. I think it was seven years ago you had a powerful depression. Was it hard, sort of, giving something of yourself into the book in that way? Did it come naturally to you? Uh, it wasn't so hard because I don't really go into the details of, apart from just saying about that very specific side effect. And um, you know, I was quite lucky in that I felt like I um recovered from like my depression quite quickly actually with a combination of like the antidepressant pills and like CBT um and that all like ties in with the expectation of it too because there's like loads of work showing that if you are more optimistic about the benefits of therapy you're more likely to actually like uh, recover during the therapy than if you kind of assume it won't work right from the beginning so you know, and I did try to take quite a positive attitude, but like there were small things I could change that would eventually help me to kind of recover from depression. And um, you know, I have like low moments, but I haven't really um, relapsed, I would say, since then. Okay, well, that's good to hear that you, you know, you're doing well. Um, and I suppose that's why it's important to have a therapist that you like, isn't it? I often hear people talk about that with therapy. You got to, you, you know, chop and change sometimes because if you like them, you're you're bound to feel more positive about the whole thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this guy was like super helpful, um, and you know, I mean, so it was done uh, by phone actually because the NHS <laughs> has to save money, um, but that worked fine. And I tried to be try to have like a bit of a positive mindset about that too. Like, you know, you could feel like you're not getting the full kind of service, but I mean, it was fine. There was no real need for me to see him face to face actually. So hmm. yeah. I've done uh, zoom therapy. So at least you got the, mm. the video, yeah. but then yeah, the therapist, yeah. she didn't have a very clear camera. And I did say what at one point I was just like, what, um, what webcam do you have? And she sort of explained what it was. And then I just, I didn't want to push anymore. I was just like, okay, that's, that's all I said. I, I was hoping she yeah. would then think, oh, I do look a bit blurry, but she, she didn't. And, um, mm. but I still liked her and it yeah. helps. But one, yeah. one thing I'm, I, I, I think therapy is really good and it's helped me a lot as, as well in the past. Um, and I, th I think a lot of people can do with it. And, uh, but then one thing I worry about, and I think it relates as well to your book, is that um, my little sister's 14 and basically at her school, every kid has got 
like something because they're encouraged to talk about it. There's a lot of talking in the media, which obviously is a really good thing because they're in touch with their feelings and everything. That's how it should be. You don't want to have to repress stuff. But I do worry there's like almost an element of if you don't have, and this this sound, this is the conservative part of my brain. The old reactionary brain is sort of going like, oh, it's a fashion, it's a fad. Like if you don't have something, then you're almost left out and left behind. I mean, do you worry about that? And in your book, there were a couple of examples as well, I think of schools where like mass hysteria spread and people felt very real uh, symptoms. Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely happening. You know, like recently, there's been this kind of um, people like showing the symptoms of Tourette's in the US uh, because of like TikTok ah. videos that are kind of showing the symptoms, and then you know it's um, kind of contagious through this kind of nocebo like expectation. <sighs> Scary. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, happened, totally. that happened in South Park. Yeah. Did you see that South Park episode? No, no I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Cartman does it. It was about ten years ago. This episode came out. Cartman. Um, he starts doing it to, to I, either he's making fun of someone I can't remember or he was trying to get some advantage from pretending he had Tourette's and then it really did start to happen and he was revealing things in his Tourette's that he didn't that were very embarrassing for him that he didn't want to uh, want to reveal yeah I need to check out that episode I kind of wish I'd known that before I wrote the chapter but yeah oh. I mean you know and again these people aren't making it up either and you know like a Havana syndrome in the US, well, with US diplomats, um, that's probably, you know, um, I'm going out on a limb here, because there's no scientific consensus on what the cause is. But like, quite a few neurologists think that it's um, kind of a psychogenic illness, you know, caused by negative expectations. But just because it's psychogenic doesn't mean that these people are like making it up. You know, what's the Havana for people who don't know um, about it? Yeah, so this is where like, a there were these kind of reports that like diplomats and kind of spies in Cuba were, um, they felt like there was this kind of weapon that was being directed at them from a distance that was causing things like dizziness, tinnitus. I mean, originally it was called this kind of um, sonic weapon because people often heard this kind of quite high-pitched sound around it. But then when someone took a recording of the weapon, (laughs) people found it was the sound of um, cicadas instead so, oh, shit. what are cicadas um like are they like crickets like oh right yeah um, i know okay yeah, yes yeah yeah you know i have some kind of insect that kind of makes like a kind of humming sound um which i think can be like really loud and quite unpleasant but i mean when they did the acoustic analysis it was clear it wasn't like a human made weapon it was the sound of these insects um so then they kind of um the idea was maybe it's some kind of radio wave weapon that was kind of focusing on their brains but it, you know like physicists are like super um skeptical that such a weapon could be built let alone that it could be kind of transportable and it could pass through walls and you know that you could hide all of this from like observers um so like and for this reason lots of neurologists think that actually these sound like um are kind of psychogenic illnesses and it's kind of like these diplomats you know were being harassed by the um, Cuban government. Um, so it was already like a high stress environment. And then you had one patient who started developing symptoms, and then everyone else kind of started to assume that they were being targeted by this weapon as well. So it kind of spread to lots of people. Um, and, you know, like, it, like, it's really like, quite debilitating, apparently, like, it's not something to laugh at. But, um, but I think what's weird to me is that a lot of the uh, media coverage is just like a 
oh, well, you know, even like um, kind of senators in the US are saying things like, um, it would be impossible for this to be psychogenic because you'd have to be such a consumer actor to be putting on these symptoms. But oh. that's not what neurologists mean by psychogenic illness. It's like you're like the people with allergies, like with my headaches, like you're totally feeling the symptoms and showing the physical signs of the symptoms. But that's coming from this kind of mind-body connection uh, where the brain is kind of creating the symptoms out of nowhere. We all sort of prickle a bit if somebody suggests that our our illnesses or symptoms might be... Is psychosomatic just a synonym for psychogenic? Uh, I think there's like a very slight distinction in that psychosomatic could well be where like your expectations are kind of exacerbating an existing symptom. Whereas I think psychogenic is where it's like wholly, completely caused by your expectations. Yeah. We, we we do prickle a bit if if someone's ill and and it is I think it's I don't know if this is just us, but like as a couple, uh if one of us has a headache, I guess you want your partner to not have the headache anymore. So you sort of you'll be like either that we've got some painkillers here, so that'll be good and you do you rest a bit, but then sometimes you might be like you want them to get it into their heads that they might be imagining it. Because I guess we all do have that awareness that once you sort of that some of it is psychological and psychosomatic. I should say about the the Havana syndrome. Was it you that because it was in your book, um that in the expectation effect, it's but did you write quite a long article about it a couple of months ago? No, yeah, no, that must have been someone else. But there have there has been like a bit of coverage, and you know, like um Suzanne O'Sullivan, the neurologist um who specializes in psychogenic illness, she also like covers that in her latest book, Sleeping Beauties. Um and yeah, she's like absolutely convinced it's coming from uh, kind of psychological origin it's not caused by this kind of mysterious weapon yeah i was thinking of covering it for because i'm writing a book at the moment about secrets the effect of of secret keeping why you why you reveal secrets why you keep them what happens to you when you're holding on to too many difficult ones um and again i was looking at that because these are obviously age spies and agents and things who are holding on to secrets and i think you mentioned as well part of it could be the stress of the situation they're in some of that will be created by the secrets they're keeping yeah 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 exactly i mean you know, I definitely think like personal stress is like um, lays the foundation for a lot of these psychogenic illnesses. And then it's like um, you often don't need much of a kind of trigger to then kind of cause them to manifest in different ways. It's crazy, isn't it? So is the brain just is the brain just this big prediction machine? Uh, is is anything real? Uh, and and what is unconscious inference? Yeah. So that was this. Um, that's this kind of. Uh, old idea and it's you know but that turns out to be true um, from Hermann von Hel- uh, Helmholtz um, who you know he was one of the first people to come up with this idea that we when we're perceiving the world actually like the data coming into our senses is like super messy you know like if you we can't ever see what our retina is picking up but it's not pretty basically and then the brain (laughs) because it's just so confused you know like and then the brain has to kind of edit that data down into something that looks kind of meaningful you know like identifying the contours and kind of sharpening them you know working out perspective like all of these things it would be impossible just without any kind of processing um to kind of build that kind of picture from what is on the what um what light falls on the retina because they're kind of you know, 2D plates that are quite granular, you know, so a lot of work has to go into creating this kind of rich sensual experience that we have. Um, and a lot of that comes from this kind of top-down processing. So, you know, as you grow up, um, like a baby probably does see like this kind of unfiltered view of the world. Um, and then as we grow up, we've kind of built more memories and understanding of kind of how the world should look. And it's the brain is then using those uh, those kind of experiences to guide 
uh, it's kind of visual editing or it's kind of auditory editing, you know, for all of the senses. And then that, it kind of produces a simulation of kind of what's most likely to be out there. And we see that simulation, we don't actually see the kind of raw data. Um, and so that leaves us like vulnerable to perceptual expectation effects where your expectations can cause you to kind of see a hallucination, you know, see kind of ghost, um, see a kind of ghost in the um, uh, flames of the Notre Dame Cathedral, for example. Like right. lots of people reported that and that was an expectation effect, you know, unless you're religious and you think it was actually a sign from God. But yeah, it's all of that kind of thing, especially when the data is kind of ambiguous. Uh, the brain is kind of easily swayed by its expectations. Man. Wouldn't you like to see like the world as it is, even just for like an hour? Just the, I, I guess that's impossible for anyone yeah. to ever do, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I really think it is. I mean, I think sometimes people who've had strokes and they lose a lot of that visual processing, they do report something that seems, uh, it's like where their vision just kind of breaks apart. And that's partly because they can't do this like predictive processing of the essential data. Oh, that's awful though. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. The closest thing I suppose is in, in your book, and it worked on Kindle as well, were these uh, images where it looks like a big mess and then you say afterwards, like a clue as to what it might be. And then when I see it, then suddenly I can't, whenever I see it, I see forever what that, what that is. Although there was one that I just, I couldn't anyway. So I think my brain oh, was really? bad. At, yeah, I saw <laughs> oh, later. Yeah. It wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. I've got a rubbish brain. I couldn't see what it was. And it was like, it was like 10 pages later or a few in the Kindle, because it's all a bit over. It was yeah, a few pages yeah, later yeah. and then it showed, it was a dog, um, that took up a lot of the picture. So I just wasn't expecting that. So again, but then once I saw uh, that, yeah. if I go back, I can see it. You you wrote, yeah. obviously, the intelligence trap about how we shouldn't trust the way we think. We go down these different uh, uh, segues yeah. and whatever. Uh, expectation effects as well. We should is, is the theme here that we shouldn't trust our own minds? Is is that something that plays a big role in, in your life as well? Mm. Yeah, no, it is. Um, you know, I think there is this kind of common thread between the intelligence trap and the expectation effect. But, you know, we have to be more kind of questioning of our assumptions. And I'd say in the expectation effect, you know, especially when it comes to things like our stress mindsets, you know, like, it's really natural, because we've been told this a lot, that stress is just inherently damaging. Um, and you just assume that's true. Um, but actually, like the research shows, it's only true if you have this kind of mindset that stress is debilitating and damaging for your health and if you assume that stress is actually energizing then you show kind of different hormonal profile when you have to face this kind of you know difficult kind of challenge like um you know giving a speech or you know all of that kind of thing that's like really tough for most people to do but if you're telling yourself that those feelings of anxiety are actually like you know it's pumping blood to your brain which is helping you to think more sharply and it's giving you a bit of energy in your performance but actually just changing your mindset to that can actually be hugely helpful um for you know changing your performance but also your kind of physiological reaction um but like i just think you know like we we just see we just um assume that stress is bad and we don't question that and I think that's what I'm really trying to tell people is that sometimes the pessimistic view a view of stuff is actually like really irrational and the optimistic view can be more rational and I think we kind of have this kind of cultural bias against that that it seems kind of smart to be cynical all the time but actually you know sometimes like the cynical pessimistic view of events is like no more rational than trying to take a kind of 
more qualified but optimistic view of what's happening. So it's like, I guess you're always having this battle with your subconscious. I'm subconscious then. Um, you, if you're telling yourself you've got a speech and you're going, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. I'm, ex- I'm excited to do this. That's not nervousness. And But then you're battling this voice at the back that's going, nah, you're rubbish at this. You're going to fail. I saw a, because I had to do a speech for the Bristol Humanist Society. Mm. And I yeah. saw um, Chris Hughes, who's a hypnotist, who was on this show as well. And he says, all that he's very open about it. He's like, look, this, this, this is not like some magic thing or anything like that. All, all he really did was sit me down and just say lots of very, very positive things for an hour about how brilliant I was going to be and how brilliant I was going to do. And it didn't really feel like anything different was happening. And then I just went and did the speech and I wasn't nervous at all. And I had, but before that was my nightmare. That's why I wanted to see him. It's just crazy how well that worked. Yeah, exactly. And I think with the kind of stress mindset stuff like what's important to remember with that is that you're not trying to like suppress the feeling of anxiety um which you know if you took a kind of traditional view of positive thinking you'd just be like you know like you're not you'd just be telling yourself I'm not anxious I have to be calm and that actually makes things worse if you try to suppress like an anxious feeling like it you kind of rebound and you feel even worse um so this is more just telling you to like um to kind of accept the feeling, but to ask yourself whether it could actually mean something different from what you're expecting. Whether actually like all of that arousal that you're feeling, like physiological arousal, is actually in some way beneficial. And so you don't necessarily have to like it. Like it's not like you're fooling yourself into feeling something that's not true. You're just kind of questioning whether actually that could be useful for you. And it's that like small mental shift that is so powerful. That's great. I'm, th- I'm, even, I'm filled with anxiety just listening to you talk. So I'm just thinking about uh, I've got a friend's really. best man speech to do. It's not for like another nine months, but I'm just thinking, mm. okay, reframe that sort of positive. Okay, it's good to feel. You had two burglaries of, of, of people trying to force the lock, and then and you, that's that's mad. Is that why you're moving? Why is everyone burgling you? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, it was quite weird. Um, I mean, it hasn't happened since then. So that was like two years ago. Um, you know, it was a bit, it was quite scary because um, it was so blatant as well. It's not like they were trying to be quiet. It's not like they checked if we were in or not. It was like at 10 o'clock at night, which isn't that early. I think we'd just been on holiday. Maybe they assumed the flat was um, still empty. Um, but, and then I changed the locks because the first time they did try, they did actually manage to um, force the lock. And then the second time they, um, they just tried but couldn't. So did they get in the first time? Yeah, but then they like uh my boyfriend like shouted out and they kind of left. So oh we God. saw the kind of because they'd managed to force we have a chain on the door, so they'd like forced that off as well. But then like they hadn't actually had time to steal anything because we'd heard it before, like, you know, they entered. So did you catch a glimpse of them? Uh yeah, and they looked quite dweeby to be honest. They were not <laughs> <laughs> like they weren't threatening figures but i guess you know our stereotypes about burglars probably aren't like yeah realistic, head, like. those poor burglars they get so they get such a rough time like, the stereotypes yeah. prejudiced because like, i'm thinking of like leia cake or one of those um bloke who married madonna guy, guy ritchie movie guys, uh, you know, yeah. big burly and it <laughs> man i'm sorry you went through that i, I guess we can laugh now because but that's that's a scary thing because it's that's your one mm. secure place and they were they they made a mockery of it. They smashed the door. Yeah, yeah. And it was so that created this kind of expectation effect where like um uh I would often like think I could hear the door being 
um, forced, you know, even when the sounds probably weren't very similar. So, you know, it could have been someone outside kind of just like unlocking their car. Um, you know, our printer just randomly like um, decides to kind of shuffle about its like motors or whatever, like oh, it run, I guess when it's yeah. updating its software or whatever. But like then I was like certain that someone was doing it. And, um, but no, it was just like, randomly like printing a blank sheet of paper so yeah um but that showed me how like um important these expectations are in like shaping perception because like to me it sounded identical to when like we were being burgled um because i had that kind of heightened anxiety i asked you a similar question last time i think um because i'm doing these podcasts i'm always learning these fascinating things and then i mean are you quite an annoying boyfriend to be around are you always explaining things and like he he just wants to be scared or something and you're going like yeah but it's the expectation of oh it's the intelligence trap what you've just fallen down is that does that happen yeah totally and especially um with like doing exercise so one of the expectation effects is that you can um it's like often our kind of uh, assumptions of our phys- uh, physical fitness can then kind of change our physiological reaction to exercise. So, you know, if you kind of assume that your body's just not capable or cut out for doing the workout, then you actually find it like a lot harder. Um, you know, mm. that's measured in ob- objective measures like um, your endurance on the treadmill, even things like the gas exchange in your lungs is kind of less efficient if you assume wow. that you're not good at exercise. Um but um, so, you know, I've, I go to the uh, gym quite regularly. I do all of these kind of, you know, like Tom Daly workouts online and stuff. Um, but um, my boyfriend just finds it super annoying if he can tell that I'm trying to like shift his expectations of fitness, um, yeah. which I do all the time. Like I'll be like, oh, you know, once you get to the gym, it'll actually be really fun and you'll like thank yourself afterwards. And he finds that super annoying. Patronising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm accused yeah. of that all the time. Really patronising. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, the same thing because you're sort of like, you're pulling the threads and you're doing, you're like the puppet master, like using all this stuff you've learned. Like, well, you know, actually, uh, you'll actually enjoy the thing that I want to do as well because, you know. No, exactly. And like with my mother-in-law, I was like, because um, she's, you know, in her 60s now and um, doesn't do much exercise. And I was trying to do this kind of thing where like, oh, you might be surprised by how much you can do. Like lots of research shows that, you know, even like into your 60s and 70s, you can have like great physical health. And like my boyfriend was like, just stop there. He's trying psychology on you. Like don't listen to a word that he's saying. <laughs> he's doing psychology. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, my mum's like about to turn 60 and she plays tennis quite a lot. So I think, mm. that, you know, yeah. <laughs> tell your mother-in-law that yeah um, exactly <laughs> yeah. in terms of this sort of psych- psychological manipulating so if you had a 15 year old or 14 year old girl i'm going back to my sister and her friends and all of that and a lot of them are suffering mm. especially because there's been covid as well they've had it's almost un- unprecedented yeah. the psychological effects of like these 12 to 15 year old kids who've got like had like a year of sitting at home and not knowing what they're doing you know all the uncertainty and stuff so it's difficult and then there's that part of me that's also going yeah but you don't maybe you don't have that uh, anxiety or whatever it might be to, to some of the kids. How how would you go about speaking to them? Because that's quite, I don't know what to, I don't know, I don't expect you to have an answer to this exactly, but do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And I think like, you know, like um, Suzanne O'Sullivan, in fact, says that often like psychogenic illnesses are like the hardest to treat because people are so resistant to the idea that it could be a psychological origin. Um, you know, so they 
often, you know, like, because there's lots of these um, kind of functional neurological disorders. I discussed one in my book where, like, um, someone went blind because they um, had kind of developed this expectation that they couldn't see. Or, you know, you have people with, like, um, kind of functional epilepsy that doesn't have this kind of obvious biological cause, but it's caused by kind of um, expectation again. And, you know, like, so these people often are undergoing, like, really intense like medical procedures like trying to look for the answer um when actually like they could respond really well to psychological therapy so it's quite difficult to kind of open people's minds but I think the first thing that has to be done is to just like remove the stigma around like psychogenic illness um because you know even people in the medical profession if they don't specialize in that they have all of those ideas that oh it's like made up it's not real like the symptoms don't really exist like it doesn't matter um it really does so I think like using like whatever language you can to like show that actually there should be no stigma attached to this and I feel like with mental health in general we're like getting better at being kind of open and like destigmatizing that and I think we just need to do the same you know when like say these psychological problems are manifesting in like less well-known ways um so yeah like reducing the stigma kind of using examples of people who have recovered and like getting them to share their experiences. I think all of that could be like super useful. Mm. I think, I mean, you and I so far on this episode have both spoken about uh, going to therapy ourselves. And I don't think that makes us uh, any seem any weaker. I think it makes us seem stronger, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, the truth is that like, you know, we're, I, I think it, it still is a minority of people who have like a diagnosed psychological problem. But I mean, it's like a big minority, you know, it's not unusual. So I think like emphasizing that fact that you're not kind of isolated in this condition is really important. Yeah, there is that. And then, and then, like I say, I just, I don't know, I get concerned because there's, I guess this is both sides, aren't there? Because there's that other side, as I was saying before, if we keep telling everyone like everyone has something and then they start to think they have stuff. Should should the media play down, for example, the effects of COVID rather than play it up? Would that make people feel better? Then I don't know. Mm, yeah, I don't think we should be misleading people in either <laughs> direction. Um, and I think that's always the difficult line to kind of tread is to, how can you be like totally objective? Um, but say, you know, with like the vaccine side effects, which, you know, we know like some are kind of real in inverted commas, others are like um, caused by expectation. Um, I felt like there was just a lot, especially on social media, of everyone sharing how bad their experience was. Um, And maybe we didn't see so many people saying like, I was totally fine, which could seem a bit braggy (laughs) in a way. It's like, (laughs) like why would you tweet it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, like it's quite important for people to know that, you know, it's not inevitable. Um, So I think that kind of thing, maybe in the, in the way that the media even kind of frames things like side effects, it could be different. So, you know, if if it is like 25% of people, are kind of suffering from like a real side effect. You could also like frame that as saying 75% of people, you know, get along totally fine without any kind of problems. And that just like phrasing it in that way actually can be quite potent in like reducing these kind of negative like nocebo expectation effects um, because you're kind of raising people's expectations that, you know, chances are they'll be fine. One of my closest friends refuses to get uh, the vaccine um mm. and and he just says like look he's he's very fit and healthy 
And he said, I'm just going to stay healthy and exercise a lot. Why do I have to put this in my body? Yeah, I mean, my mum's the same. Well, and my brother, who kind of brainwashed her. Um, but that's a different story. But um, yeah, like, uh, into they're both like complete. Um, they were, first of all, they were COVID deniers and now they're vaccine deniers. But um, I mean, I just like every time I see my mum, I try to be like, oh, have you got the vaccine yet? Like, and just kind of gently suggest it because I know if I try to go into the facts, like, she will become more kind of resistant. So I also think, like, with that kind of person, um, actually, like, just talking about all the people you know who have had the vaccine can be quite powerful if you kind of make it clear that it's the norm to have the vaccine. Mm. Um, You know, and actually, ironically, like when the, I think in the US, they found that if you emphasise how rare it is or how difficult it is to get the vaccine, then people are like, oh, wow, it must be special. Like I have to go and get that now. (laughs) So so there are some ways, yeah. That's South Park as well. They did a recent oh, yeah. co. I like my cartoons, South Park and Simpsons, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh, they did a recent episode um, where they did have that. It was like a club that you can try to get into to get the vaccine. Um, they did that mm. whole metaphor. See, yeah. they're on the ball. They've got. They know what they're. Yeah, they know their psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that they are smart people. Tell me about those. Um, t- two presidents died on the same day, or fiftieth uh, anniversary of Independence Day. What was that about? Yeah, so it was. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the same day, which was like the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, um, a momentous occasion for both of them. And then a crazy coincidence that they both died on the exact same day. Um, you know, people at the time were like, oh, maybe this is a sign of like, you know, God blessing the United States of America. Um, right. and, you know, I feel like you could hear that today if the same thing happened, actually. Sure. But um, yeah, <laughs> but, um, you know, like scientists kind of suspect that there could be this kind of expectation effect going on where like, because um, it was such a, you know, profound moment for their lives, that anniversary. And you know, like when you look at these huge kind of um, longitudinal studies of people, you find that they are kind of more likely, slightly more likely to die on kind of big occasions like their birthdays um, or on like the new year. Like there was an especially big peak in the um, uh, turning of the millennium. Um, And like the idea is just that like, you know, we're not, it's more just like if you're suffering from a chronic illness, like your brain can kind of just try to help you to kind of like uh, to drag you over that kind of final landmark point, you know, just like, and then it's like afterwards it's, it's kind of giving up on its will to live a little bit. So which is affecting your physiology so that you're just more likely to die kind of on or just after that event. And so that's the um, suspicion that that was happening with these presidents. That's crazy, isn't it? This idea that because you always hear like in movies and stuff, and it's become a bit cliche of like he's just given up or he has no more will to live. And I used to think, oh, what a load of nonsense. But it's interesting to hear there is really a physiological reason for that. I think Shakespeare died on his birthday. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's quite a few kind of I can't remember many of them apart from these presidents. But yeah, it's quite common um, among like in like a kind of the biographies of famous people or historical figures that, yeah, you know, that kind of thing does happen. 23rd of April, 1616. I'm just reading that. That's not in my head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was fi- he was 52. He was quite young, actually. Mm, young, yeah. 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 Poor guy. 
Um, it'd be dead now anyway, though. And then, because that reminds me a bit of like, you know, exams and stuff. When I was a kid, I used to always get ill after doing exams. And it was like, you're, you're sort of holding it off almost. And then you go, oh, and then you let yourself get ill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's very similar, I think, that you, you know, like the mind can't perform like actual miracles, but there are things that it could do with like, changing the kind of inflammatory response or blood pressure, you know, all of these kinds of things that could just be, that could like affect kind of the precise moment that you die. That's crazy. I think I was thinking, there's so much stuff when I was reading this, I was thinking about, I was thinking about the exorcist that I interviewed um, because he obviously helped these people and they were better for quite a long time, like actually much better uh, Mm. for like a good year or so after being exercised. I thought about when I was at university and I remembered this particular time I came home from a party just like staggering home and like couldn't get the key in the door trying to open the door and I was just like a complete mess just like oh bloody hell I'm not going to feel good in the morning and only as I sort of opened the door and walked through did I remember I hadn't had a drink that night oh really yeah just everybody else had they were all drunk so everyone around me was drunk so I just had hours of being around that and I guess I had would, would that be an example of the expectation effect of me just expecting that I was drunk yeah, totally. So, I mean, I haven't um, included that in my book, but I have just written a piece with the BBC about this, actually, that a lot of our drunk behaviour is caused by expectation rather than the kind of physiological effects. And so what's weird about alcohol is that it's actually, um, it's kind of like a a kind of mood suppressant. Like, it should, it's a downer, basically. Uh, but loads of the things that we associate with alcohol, like um, becoming more extroverted or kind of gregarious and aggressive like those are things that you'd expect from like stimulant drugs um so scientists have always suspected that well maybe it's actually our expectations that kind of it's like a placebo effect that's causing us to change our behavior rather than the actual kind of chemical um and that's just what they found like they had all of these like ingenious experiments where they kind of gave people kind of mocktails that were like super realistic and then uh those people were like um you know, like super mean to like the other people in the group because they kind of expected that the alcohol would let them become a bit more kind of aggressive or rude. Um, you know, other times like uh, they would kind of get them to like record a video of themselves, like a kind of fake advert um, and look back at it. And like these people were like, if they thought they'd had alcohol, they were like, oh yeah, I'm brilliant. I'm like, you know, like they had all of that kind of self-enhancement that you have when you have a drink and you're like cock at the walk, even if they'd had like this like alcohol-free mocktail. So yeah, it's so quite funny. powerful. Happens yeah. the other way as well. My my girlfriend often accuses me of stealing her period. There'll be a few days oh, of yeah. the month when I'm a bit down and I'll be a bit low and I'll want sort of more attention and I'll be a bit needier and stuff. And I don't know if part of that's also just to... To, so that I'm the one that gets looked after, even though it's her period, you know, that's, which is probably mm. very selfish okay. of me, or or if I'm sort of, and there, there is that thing, isn't there? I, I, and again, I'm just anecdote. I don't, I hardly even know if this is a true thing. There's that, that rumor that, that women tend to synchronize when they're together. Mm, yeah, I don't know if that's true, actually. Yeah. Have you heard that? I, yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, like, I think it's often taken as like, as the truth, yeah. I'm not sure if it is nonsense, <laughs> though. Yeah, maybe it is, yeah. I have no idea, no idea. I think I, it probably, it's probably that when it does happen, it gets talked about, and then it's, you know, you don't talk, they don't talk about all the times it hasn't happened. Yeah, exactly. It's that, like, uh, availability bias or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is, tell me about, um, like, mirroring, and, and how do you pronounce these monkeys? That I, I've read the name of them for, like, my whole life, and I never had to pronounce them. Is it macaque, macaques? 
macaques. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So they, um, you know, like in the 1990s, uh, this Italian group of researchers were like trying to understand like the neural code of like how neurons respond when we kind of um, perform actions. So they had this kind of monkey with electrodes in its brain. Um, and it was like, uh, you know, they were recording like when it was picking up its peanuts or like playing with a toy. And, you know, they sh- saw that there was this kind of um, uh, repeated like, uh, signal that they saw each time it performed a certain action. It was like they could identify what it was doing just from like the electrical activity of the brain. But then I think this is apocryphal, this particular part of the story, that a graduate student then walked in to the lab like eating an ice cream and then they saw the same, um, the kind of same pattern of activity in the monkey that they would normally expect when it was eating a treat. And so it looked like it was kind of mirroring the it was like imagining in such detail that it was identical to the actual activity that it should have been feeling. Anyway, they did loads of experiments to actually check that was true. And it was true. So when the monkey was picking up a peanut or if it saw someone else picking up a peanut, you saw the same pattern of activity. So these were called mirror neurons. And we don't know exactly if like the mechanism in the human brain is exactly the same, but we do know there's this kind of mirror system. So the same general areas for certain like uh, kind of light up when we observe something or when we do it ourselves. And that's also true for emotions. If you see someone feeling happy, like, you know, you have the same kind of activity in your brain. It's kind of much weaker, but it is there. Um, and so that's partly how kind of um, feelings are so contagious. So there's other mechanisms. It can't explain all kind of human empathy, but it does kind of lay a foundation for um, for empathy and kind of Uh, our tendency to mirror each other's actions and feelings. And so that could help us to understand how, say, like um, the symptoms in the uh, people suffering from Havana syndrome kind of spread between um, all of the different diplomats. Because if you see someone else kind of uh, in a lot of pain, you're kind of, you've got this neural signal that's kind of priming you to feel the same. And if you then add to that this kind of expectation that there's this kind of weapon that's going to be... you know, fired at your head to kind of give you a terrible headache or to give you tinnitus or whatever, then, you know, it's just enough to actually kind of create like a strong enough signal in the brain that you're actually feeling it yourself. must be tough for like um, doctors and psychiatrists and stuff always being around ill or psychologically unwell people. It must, I wonder if there's been studies on that, like they, if they get quite low dealing with that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm pretty certain they do. I think there have been like a, study of doctors of surgeons um that had found that they do seem to have learned to kind of um like dump down that response so they can like turn off their empathy a bit when they're performing surgery which i feel kind of reassured by because you don't want a surgeon to be like freaked out (laughs) every time they cut into you I hope that was everything that you were expecting. The expectation effect is out in all the normal places. Like right now, it's just come out. It's out like today, I think. If you're listening to this on the launch day of this episode on the 3rd of January, 2022, I think David's books come out like today or tomorrow. You can, If it's tomorrow, you can pre-order, pre-order it. But go and have a look for it on Amazon and all the places. It's in the show notes. Um, can you believe we're in 2022? We're in 2022 and David Robson's written his second book, the expectation effect it's all ridiculous we're in the future 
Uh, it was a great pleasure to speak to David again. Follow him on D underscore A underscore Robson or just type David Robson on Twitter. I'm Andrew Gold underscore OK there on, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. Get our bonus chat on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold on Apple. Uh, on Patreon at the time of writing, 10 days before this is set to come out, the Patreon is up to £297 and I'd love to break through £300 as I get closer to doing this for a living. And you guys, if you sign up, you'll get your ads-free episodes and bonus episodes and all that. I've recorded this, what I'm saying now, uh, before Christmas Day even and before New Year's Eve. So I don't have new reviews and Patreons and patrons and things to tell you about. Coming up next week is John Ronson. And and again, if you're wondering if that was John uh, saying his name for me, no, that was me doing a quite wonderful impression. Uh, But I cannot wait to drop that one on you. He'll be talking about his new podcast, Things Fell Apart. The following week is the one, the only, Richard Dawkins. I won't be doing an impression of his voice lest he scold me. But he's a, if you don't know already, you've been living under a rock. Uh, He's a renowned scientist and atheist known for the God delusion, among many other works. He also had his humanist status or the Humanist of the Year award removed by some people because he said there are only two sexes or some such thing. Uh, It's very controversial. I did ask him about that very briefly, that which was very scary to do. Um, And yes, as I say, the scariest interviewee to date. And I've interviewed psychopaths. Um, and I don't think Richard is one. He was actually very lovely, but it's just if, if you say something that's not entirely accurate or right, he will pick you up on it. And and why shouldn't he? Have a lovely new year. Thanks for sticking with On the Edge with Andrew Gold into 2022. It's been a wild 18 months since I started this in May of 2020. And here's to another year of scary, crazy, bizarre, and hopefully educational and informative interviews. And may all your wishes for the year come true. I can't wait to have you here next week with John Ronson. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.